Welcome to a talk from St. Saviour's Sunbury. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Very warm welcome to you. Do If you've just arrived, do grab yourself a cup of tea or coffee on the way in and a slice of cake. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm the vicar here at St. Saviour's. A very warm welcome to St. Saviour's if you're a guest. A very warm welcome if you're a member of St. Saviour's, of course. And to Bishop Graham for taking the time out to teach us on such an important subject. Uh, I, you know, as I was talking to my church and encouraging them to come, it's something that affects us all. And something that if you're a Christian here this evening, you'll have been asked about. How can you believe in a God who allows suffering? So really looking forward to um, Bishop Graham's teaching. If you happen to need toilet this evening, uh, there's a toilet just to my right there. That's warm. Or you can go to the Arctic. You can head out to the Arctic through the door to your right. Uh, the last time there was an evacuation was uh, during World War II. So I think we're going to be all right. But if you do need to, go back out through the door that you came in or the doors to the side here. Um, Barry from Canaan Bookstore, if you've not been to Canaan Bookstore before in Staines, please do visit him. Let's support our, our local retailers. It's a Christian bookstore, so they've got all sorts of really good gifts and books. And we're coming up to Christmas, of course. So uh, he has brought some of uh, Bishop Graham's books tonight. You can get them on special discount, money off. Uh, and if you buy all four of the books, you can get them for £12 off in total. So it's The Widening Circle, Provocative Church, Bound to be Free, and Luther's Gospel. And no, Bishop Graham did not ask me to sell his books on his behalf. But um, yeah, do visit uh, the bookstore before you head home. Shall we begin by praying together? Father God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your church. And we thank you for all of the churches that are represented here this evening. We thank you for the witness and the worship of your church. And we thank you, God, that we can come together, we can grapple and wrestle with difficult topics such as this, because we know that you are faithful, we know that you are just, and we, we know that you are a God who is love. And we receive your love again this evening. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give Bishop Graham a round of applause as he comes to take stage. Great. Thank you, Ron, very much indeed, and uh, welcome, everybody. It's great to see you all here tonight, and um, uh, it's always a great pleasure to come to St. Saviour's and to... Uh, uh, just a little bit down the A316 to Sunbury, as you know, we live in Twickenham, so we're not very far away, uh, but great to see many of you from other churches around, uh, not just this deanery, but other deaneries as well, because I know one or two of you from Hounslow Deanery have sort of come down this way, uh, it's a little bit nearer as well, so it's uh, fantastic to see you all tonight. And um, we're going to be looking at this uh, theme of why does God allow suffering, and as you probably know, what I'm doing over this um, term is to go around all of the six deaneries, we have six deaneries in the uh, the Kensington area of the Diocese of London, and um, this is number five. I'm trusting that each one gets better <laughs> as it goes time, you know, because every time you do it, you get asked questions. And then you say, oh, I haven't thought about that, you know, I'll put something in on that one, and you get another question and so on. So hopefully this is, the, this is you know, maybe the next one might be, might be even better, I don't know. Maybe it'll go downhill, the last one. Maybe, maybe you've got the best one of them all. Anyway, it's um, fantastic to be here tonight to think about this, um, this really important theme uh, together, because uh, as... 
that Ron was saying, it is, um, of course, one of the main problems that people thinking about Christian faith, thinking, you know, do I want to become a Christian? Do I believe in God? It's one of the main, main obstacles that many people find. As Ron was saying, you know, how can I possibly believe in a God who allows such terrible things to happen in his world? But it's not just, I think, a problem for those who are not Christians, thinking about maybe being a Christian or thinking about Christian faith. I actually think it's also a problem for those of us who are Christians. And it's always even more of a problem for those of us who are Christians, because if you are a Christian, you know something about the goodness of God. And therefore, trying to put together the goodness of God and the love of God with this, the existence of suffering and evil in the world, that's really difficult. The more you know of the goodness of God, the more incongruous the presence of suffering and evil is. So it's a problem, I think, for all of us at the same time. Now, um, if I can um, start this evening with just a few uh, observations uh, about it. First thing is just to define the problem. Um, if we can just go over the next slide for a moment. Um, this is uh, a definition of the problem, which kind of comes from the philosopher David Hume, and it goes like this. Is he, that's God, willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? So the way that works is like this. Is God willing to prevent evil? In other words, he wants to stop evil things happening in his world. He wants to stop us suffering, but he can't do it. In which case... He's impotent. He's not very strong. It's hardly worth worshipping a God. He can't do anything about it. Then it says, is he able? In other words, he can, he could if he wanted to, stop suffering and evil happening in his world, but he's not willing. He doesn't want to. Then he sounds like a rather bad God if he could stop it, but he doesn't stop it. Then you think there's something wrong with this God. So is he both able and willing? Can he stop evil and is he, does he want to stop evil? Well, if that's the case, why does evil exist? So it's a kind of rather neat way of putting the problem. And you can, when you look at it that way, you might think, okay, end of story. Let's go home. You know, we've had 10 minutes already this evening, and um, there's not much more to say about it, because it seems, from that way of putting it, just a kind of neat argument that it's, it's impossible to put together the existence of a good God and suffering and evil in his world. So that, if you like, is the shape of the problem we're trying to address tonight. Now, let me just start with a few uh, observations about it. One, one is this, that this is never really, never purely a theoretical issue. We're going to be trying to think about it tonight, using our heads, using our minds to try to understand why suffering and evil happen in the world and what they are. We're trying, we're trying to use our minds to understand it, but it's never purely a, a theoretical issue. Because suffering is always a personal issue. And that will be true for every single one of us in this church tonight. There won't be any of us who in some way or another have not encountered suffering, have not encountered something of the evil of this world, whether in our own lives or in the lives of those who are close to us. Some of you here tonight may be going through experiences of intense suffering and difficulty where you're asking yourself the question, why is God allowing this? So it's a personal as well as a theoretical uh, problem. That's the first thing I'd want to say. Second thing is that I've never yet met a Christian who thinks they've solved the problem of suffering. Um, and as you'll see tonight, I don't think I've solved the problem of suffering either. And I'll tell you why I think 
I haven't solved that and why we can't solve it as we go a little bit later on. But that's the basic thing. I don't know a Christian who became a Christian because they thought, okay, I've sorted out suffering. I've solved that problem, therefore I can become a Christian. The reality is that all of us who are Christians are Christians despite the existence of suffering. Somehow we manage to keep believing in the presence of suffering and evil in God's world. That's the kind of way Christian faith works. So if you are not yet a Christian and thinking, well, if I can already solve out the suffering problem, then I'll become a Christian, it doesn't really work that way. Most of us who are Christians have thought about this quite a lot. And in fact, as we'll see, without in the history of the Christian church, people have thought about it all the time. It's almost the major issue in Christian faith that we've thought about. But it's not that we've solved the problem and there we become Christians, that somehow we've become Christians and we believe in God despite the presence of suffering and evil in his world. And maybe today we'll hopefully understand a little bit more about that. Number three, observation. Um, the argument that... The existence of evil and suffering in the world means you can't believe in a good God is a relatively modern problem. You can look through all the works of theology and philosophy all the way up to around the 17th century, and you won't find anyone really coming up with the argument that because there is evil and suffering in the world, we can't believe in a good God. It's very interesting that. It's quite a modern problem. Now, people, you know, wonder why is that a modern problem? Um, Maybe it's because in the modern world we think that if something's wrong, we can fix it. If there's a problem, call the plumber. Call the doctor. We can fix every problem. If there's something wrong in the world, surely somebody ought to be able to fix it. But that's a relatively modern mindset, isn't it? You know, in previous generations, people kind of accepted this was the way things were in the world. And so therefore, this didn't really come up. As we'll see later on in the Bible, you don't tend to get and people asking that question. You do get the book of Job, the book of Job, but in the book of Job in the Old Testament, you don't get people saying, well, because suffering exists, there isn't really a God. It's just kind of how you cope with suffering. Again, we'll touch on Job a little bit later on. So here are these three observations we would start off with. Now, um, what I want to try to outline for you is um, the main approaches that Christians have taken to this. Because as I said a moment ago, throughout the history of the Christian church, People have been thinking about this right from the very beginning. Every generation of Christians thinks about it. Um, I often find people who aren't Christians will say to me, you know, well, I, you know, how can you believe in a God uh, who allows suffering to exist in the world? As if I'd never thought about that as a problem. Um, of course I thought about it. Of course we all have thought about it. I don't think there's any of us who haven't thought about this problem quite deeply and tried to work it out. And of course, within the history of the Christian church, people have thought very deeply about this particular issue. Now, broadly speaking, there are three approaches that Christians have taken to try to answer this problem, this problem of why evil exists and why suffering comes out of the evil in the world. And these are these three uh, approaches. So the first one is, uh, and it will come up on the slide here, um, free will. This is sometimes called the free will defense. And in this argument, the argument goes that um, evil happens in the world and it's basically our fault. When you think of most of the suffering that happens in the world, you can kind of trace it back to human decisions. When you think of the, you know, the, the, the suffering that comes from broken families or from... Um, 
disasters that happen, like the Grenfell Tower fire or, uh, or things that happen in our society that are um, you know, part of, kind of unemployment or um, some forms of disease and others. A lot of it you can trace back to human decisions. A lot of the hurt we, fee- we make of each other are things that we say to each other or don't say to each other. So you can trace an awful lot of evil, suffering, back to that human decision. And the idea is on this that God has given us free will. He's given us human beings this capacity to choose what we do with our time and our lives. So you get up in the morning and you choose all kinds of things. We're making choices all day long. But the problem is we use our free will to make wrong choices. And as a result of making wrong choices, we hurt each other and we hurt ourselves and we hurt our planet. So when we think of climate change, we think of the damage that is happening and the threat to our very existence on this planet, you could trace that back to human decisions, the plastic that we make that's gumming up our oceans, the ozone layer that we are destroying by our greenhouse gases and so on. So in this argument, evil comes from the abuse of human free will. And the argument is that God has to give us free will because if he didn't give us free will, we would not be able to love him in return. So in this argument, um, God is love. He wants us to love him. But if he made us without free will, in other words, we were robots who had to love him, we had no choice, that love wouldn't really mean very much, would it? If you think of someone who, who, who loves you, And you discover one day that they basically have to love you. They have absolutely no choice in whether they love you or not. That love doesn't really mean very much, does it? Love only means something if it's chosen, if it's freely given. And so the only way that God can create a relationship with love with us is by giving us free will, the freedom to choose him, to choose good. But in that freedom to choose him and to choose good, he also gives us the freedom not to choose him, not to choose good, to choose evil instead. So this is basically the free will argument. And so the evil can be explained as the result of human choices, human wrong choices that are made. There's a slightly complicated way of putting it from a philosopher called Angus, uh, sorry, called Alvin Plantinga. He says this, it's possible that God, even being omnipotent, that's all powerful, even God could not create a world with free creatures who never choose evil. In other words, if he creates us free, He has to leave open the possibility that we're going to choose evil rather than good. Furthermore, he says it's possible that God, even being omnibenevolent, that's all good, that he would still desire to create a world which contains evil if moral goodness requires free moral creatures. Now, that sounds a bit complicated. Don't worry about it. Um, This is simply the free will defense, that evil comes from the exercise of human free will. We kind of get that argument, right? So that's one line of approach the Christians have tended to take to this problem. Second line is what you might call the greater good. And here comes the next slide. Um, We can look at that as well. So this is the idea of the greater good. In other words, the reason why God allows evil and suffering to take place in his world is because it's good for us. That somehow, without evil and suffering, we would not mature into the full human beings that we can be. That somehow evil and suffering are part of God's working out his plan for the world. So, one version of this is to say that, well, as human beings, you know, we're born into the world, but we have to mature, we have to grow into maturity. 
And normally speaking, we, we grow very often through the things that are difficult. Have you noticed that? You know, when you hit a barrier, when you hit a trouble, when you hit a problem, uh, if you handle it well, you, you grow through it, you learn through it, you develop through it, you mature through it. And the argument goes here that God has placed these things deliberately in the world to help us to mature and grow into full human beings. Um, John Keats, the, um, the poet, uh, once wrote a letter to his brother. Um, and he thought about this problem of suffering. And he said that, he said that the world was like a, a veil of soul-making. It's like a, a valley in which souls are being created. They're being shaped. They're being made. And he goes on and he says to his uh, brother in this letter this, Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul? A place where the heart must feel and suffer in a thousand diverse ways. So this is um, the argument of the greater good. For the greater good of human maturity, God has placed obstacles. He's placed difficulties in our way to enable us and help us to mature and to grow. Now, there's other versions of this. If you've read um, uh, C.S. Lewis's book um, where he uh, called The Problem uh, of Evil, he, um, The Problem of Pain, he calls pain and suffering, he says it's... Um, God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. His argument is that, you know, without pain and suffering, we would, we'd carry on, you know, blithely getting on with our lives, not aware that anything was wrong, not aware that we had any need for God or anything beyond ourselves. And so God, as it were, grabs our attention by putting us through the experience of suffering. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts at us in our pain. So in our pain, God shouts at us to get our attention. That's one way of the argument. Um, another part of the argument is um, a theologian like John Calvin, for example, who argues that everything that happens to you, however good or bad it may seem, is part of God's plan for you. So even when Things that seem to be bad happen to you. That's still part of the plan. It's still part of God's plan. Now, you don't know how that bit works out, his ultimate plan, but it does. And he says that because of that, you can kind of trust God that even when bad stuff happens to you, it's still part of his plan, part of his overall design for you. So that's the second argument, the greater good. The greater good. That God has placed evil and suffering in his world deliberately so that, you know, to achieve something greater as a result of it, the greater good. The third um, line of argument that um, Christians have tended to use this is what we might call, um, and here it comes on the screen, um, the kingdom of darkness. And this is the idea that evil comes not from human choice, as in the first one, nor from divine decision, which is the second one, God places evil and suffering to make us mature and for a greater good, but evil and suffering come from an evil power which is at work within the world. And that evil power might sometimes be called Satan, or the devil, or Lucifer, or all kinds of other names that you might um, see. So there is this kingdom of darkness which is at work within the world to try to destroy everything that is good, everything that God has made. So there is this kingdom of darkness. 
And in this version, evil is not ultimately our fault. It's not God's fault. It's the fault of Satan. Now, in this story, Satan, that's the way of thinking about it, Satan is like a, a fallen angel. Um, if you've ever read John Milton's Paradise Lost, that great poem, um, that's in some ways one of the greatest sort of explanations of this uh, version, uh, this very version of the story that there is. So he uh, depicts this, this character, uh, the devil. And um, uh, in this one, it's the, it's, you know, the devil is the kind of almost the primary character in, uh, in Paradise Lost. And um, Satan is a fallen angel. So in the sort of Christian view of the world, God creates all kinds of things. He creates beings within the world that you can see. He also creates beings you can't see. He creates angels. And so one of the angels turned against God in the beginning and became the Satan. He became the devil. And ever since then has been working to undermine God's work within the world. So there is a power of evil at work in the world, and that's what causes evil and suffering in God's world. So, um, and uh, there is this, now this was a, a particular strand of thinking which was quite attractive to the early Christian theologian, Michael St. Augustine. And um, he was attracted to a, a version of philosophy called Manichaeism, which was basically the idea that there are two principles in the world. There's good and there's evil. There's God and Satan. Have you ever seen those cartoons with a little angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, you know, whispering in your ear, trying to get you to do the right thing or the wrong thing. That's kind of like this, what this is. There's a, there's a good power and an evil power at work within the world. There's God and there's Satan, and they're always pulling us one way or the other. That's what the Manichees basically believed, and that goodness and evil are both eternal. They're always there in the beginning. They'll always be there in the end. You just have to try and avoid the evil bit and go towards the, the, good, the good bit. So this is this third idea, the idea of Say, of, of evil and suffering being the fault of the devil. Now, I've got a little bit of exercise for you to do now, which is, if you had to choose one of those three as the best way of answering the problem of evil, why God allows suffering in his world, which one of those would you go for? Which would you think is the most promising line of argument to take? Say, you know, someone comes to you and they say, you know, why, you know, why does God allow suffering in his world? Which do you go for? Is it um, free will, human free will? Is it um, the greater good? God has put this to help us mature. Or is it the devil? It's all the devil's fault. Which one of those would you go for? Okay, so think about that for a moment. And uh, can I get you to turn to maybe um, two or three people around you? Maybe in groups of three, four, you might have to turn around to see the people near you. And just talk about which one you go for, why you go for it, what you think... Um, uh, these three things. Um, now what you make of them and what you think the strengths and the weaknesses of each particular line of argument is. Is that all right? So if I can get you to turn to one another and um, talk together, see how you get on. Okay, well, let's do a, let's, let's do a quick straw poll um, and work out where we, where we are as a, as a group on these ones. So, okay, you've got to choose. You only choose one on this, all right? You, you can only choose one. You've got to go for your top one. So... If you would go for free will, stick a hand in the air. Okay, quite a lot for free will. How about uh, the greater good? Okay, lesser number, but still a few number of those. And how about the kingdom of darkness? Yeah, quite a few for the kingdom of darkness as well. Okay, so, uh, so mostly for free will. The other two running sort of neck and neck. It's a bit like a horse race down at Kempton Park, isn't it really, with those three? But, you know, um, human free will coming up rather well, winning the race. 
So let's just get into this a little bit. Um, so those of you who went for free will, what, what, what attracted you to that? What, um, what made you think, yeah, that's the most promising line of argument? Not to have a sense of obligation. Okay, not to have a sense of obligation in what sense? loving God. Yeah. Okay, so not to have a sense of obligation, yeah, something else? Okay. Okay. So freedom sort of explains the third one. So you 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 you're having your cake and eating it there, aren't you? <laughs> ah, very clever. Very clever. Yeah, you got two in one without doing it. Oh, very smart. <laughs> I like that. Good. Okay. Other ones. Other other sort of arguments for for the free will. Why do you go for that one? Yeah. It's a relationship and love can't exist without them. God is about yeah. relationship with each other and with Him. Sure. Exactly. Okay, so you can see the sense of it that kind of, you know, relationship involves freedom. It kind of has to. And if we want a relationship with God, if God wants a relationship with us, it necessarily involves freedom. And you can kind of see how we do that, do, do misuse freedom. Okay, so you can see some sense in this one, can't you? And it's, it's obvious, you know, every day we make choices that hurt people. You know, we say harmful things. We fail to love one another. We do stuff and we create buildings that don't work very well. And we do all kinds of things in our world that cause bad things to happen. So you can see there's an element of truth to it. You know, it, it, it sort of intuitively makes sense, doesn't it? That a lot of the suffering in the world is caused by human deliberate or, you know, just, some, just mistakes. What are, the, what are the problems with it? Um, for those of you who didn't vote for it, um, what are the drawbacks with the free will argument? Okay, yeah, so that's the kind of classic difficulty with it. It's, it's, it kind of explains why, you know, hurtful actions or, you know, a family breakdown or, you know, child abuse or whatever. It explains how those things happen. It doesn't explain very well how an earthquake happens or a tsunami or a, um, or a forest fire uh, that destroys. You know, you think of what's happening in California at the moment. All those people whose homes have been destroyed and many seem to have died in it. That doesn't sound like it's human error. Now, it might be, you know, someone dropped a cigarette, possibly, or whatever it might be, you could, but, you know, tsunamis, it's quite hard to sort of see how that's part of human kind of free will, isn't it? So, natural disasters are the bit that doesn't quite fit very well into the free, uh, the free will argument. Anything else that doesn't fit quite so well? Yeah? Um, I think the thing where there's innocence, um, something happens which is inexplicable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Okay. And I suppose, take the death of a child for a moment. I guess there's a difference between, say, you know, a drunk driver who knocks a child over. There's human choice there. But disease, childhood leukemia, that doesn't sound like a human choice. And it's much harder to sort of trace that back to kind of human action, isn't it? So we can see how human free will is sort of intuitively right, but not, not always. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you can't hear the ones at the front. Okay, good point. Thank you very much for reminding me. Um, yeah, so the point, the point there was, um, was that, you, that um, uh, you know, with, with some things that are simply inexplicable, like disease, that doesn't sound like, you know, as a result of human error. Okay, so that's that one. So free will, we can see some arguments for it, some arguments against it. What about the greater good? Uh, those of you who argued for this one, what, what, what made you um, go for that line of argument? Yeah. 
Gordon is bishop. But, yep. Um, Sorry about that. I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's because of, of uh, uh, you, you need to have suffering in order to grow, but I think it's undeniable that suffering does cause good things to happen. Okay. Yeah. Good things do result from it. Thank you. So the point being that it's undeniable that out of bad things, good things can come. Um, great. Good point. Yeah. Anything else you want to say on this one? Yeah. Okay, so you can see how in the Christian faith there is this pattern of through the cross of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, somehow salvation comes for the human race. So through suffering, good things come. That's kind of right in the middle of Christian faith. So you can see why this has some sort of purchase for Christians. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's, again, this one has a certain intuitive sense to it, doesn't it? That, that, that yes, we can see how often, and we may have had experience of, about this, of how through experiences of real suffering, some good can come through it. Um, now, if, again, what are, the, what are the drawbacks to this one? If this is an argument that this is God has deliberately placed these things in our path to enable us to mature and to grow and for good things to come out of it, what, what, are, the, what are the arguments against it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. He's a good God, and it seems odd that God would put in place things like childhood leukemia. Why does he have to do that? And as, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sure. Okay. So, the argument there being that this implies that God created evil, and it's hard to think of a good God creating evil. Now, we'll come on to the question of who created evil a little bit later on. Uh, because that's one of the kind of key questions in all this. Um, you know, if evil exists, who made it? If it wasn't God, who made it? That's, there's that question that's there. So there's a difficulty uh, with that one. Um, yeah, I mean, just to, on, on this particular one, the, um, the greater good, I mean, that, there are a number of difficulties. So, for example, um, uh, there is some suffering that just doesn't seem to lead to anything good. Now, you think of you know, long-term mental illness in some people, where they're not going to get better, they're not going to improve, they're not somehow going to learn through it, it's just a condition that they have to kind of live with for long, long periods of time, uh, and you kind of wonder how can good come out of that for the person themselves, it might come out of other people, for other people as, as well. You know, when there is re no real growth possible within a person who is experiencing intense suffering, how can that bring, there is some suffering that just doesn't lead to good stuff. It's just bad. Um, then there's a question of if, if on C.S. Lewis's grounds, um, suffering is there to make us repent, to make us realize our need for God. The difficulty with that, I guess, is why do we have to keep on suffering after we've repented? You might think, okay, I, I've repented, I've recognized God, that's enough, thank you very much. Do I have to keep on suffering? And somehow Christians are no less liable to suffering than anybody else. And so that seems to kind of be a slight kind of um, wrinkle in this one uh, as well. And I guess one of the other arguments on it is that um, if God has created evil, if God has put evil in our path for a deliberate reason, then why should we ever fight against it? It might make you think that actually, well, if this is God's will, then we just have to lie down and accept it. 
There's um, a book by the, the French author Albert Camus. It's called uh, The Plague, La Peste. And in this, this, this book, there are two characters. There's, a, there's an atheist doctor and there's a Christian priest. And uh, in this book, the town where they live is hit by a plague. And people are dying all over the place. And um, they react in very different ways. The, the priest says, well, this is, God has sent this on us. God has sent this plague on us as a judgment. We have sinned. We have done wrong. God has sent this on us. We must simply accept his judgment and endure it. And uh, so he just basically lies down and does nothing. The atheist doctor says, on the other hand, no, this is not good. This is not right. This is wrong. We must do everything we can to fight against this plague. We must use all, his, all the medical powers, all the knowledge we have to fight against this evil thing that has come upon our village. And you can see where the sympathies of Albert Camus, the, um, the, 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 um, uh, the uh, novelist, is. And, and in a way, you can kind of see the atheist has got a point here. Um, if this is wrong, if it's evil, then surely we fight against it. But actually, the idea that God has put it there might make you think, well, I shouldn't fight against God's will. So that can be a bit of a problem where. So again, this one here, you can see some elements of attraction to the argument. Yes, of course. You're absolutely right. You know, God brings good things, and it's possible to learn all kinds of things through bad stuff that happens to us. But on the other hand, as a total explanation for why evil exists in the world, it doesn't quite seem to answer all the problems. What about the third one, the kingdom of darkness? Those of you who went for that, what, what, what do you find sort of you know, compelling about that argument? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sure, okay. So you can see free will and the kingdom of darkness working together. There are these, there is an evil kind of force working upon us and it leaves us up to choose which way we go. Okay, thank you, yeah, great. So there's a, you can see some sense in that, in that way of thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I'm making you do it. <laughs> Just as a little exercise. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you have, we have this problem of cancer, but mm. it, a lot of the fundamental things mm. are already there as benign. Sure. And the immune yeah. system breaks down, you get cancer, it's able to multiply. Okay, yeah. And if you hadn't got the immune system, mm. you would also suffer. So okay. that, that is too complicated. Thank you. Okay, so the argument there is that yin and yang, they're sort of, you know, good and evil, um, cancer and immune systems, they kind of work together. Um, I, I would argue that's a, a, a kind of similar version to this last one, because it's sort of saying that they, they both need each other. In some ways, there's a kind of good and evil sort of need each other, which is basically what the Manichees said in the, in, in, in the first place. Um, so it's a kind of version of this third version, so I can see why you, know, you go for that. Now, um, we'll, we'll see if there's a difficulty with this in a moment, but... That's a, that's a really, um, really helpful point. Thank you. Yeah. I think I find there are elements of all three, but for me, yeah. the third choice 
seems to be in line with the biblical teaching. Okay. I can accept the fallen angel and yeah. the evil come through, through him. Sure. For me, it's the most acceptable okay. argument. So the argument there is that um, there's a lot in the Bible that seems to speak about the devil, uh, about the power of evil. It seems to be there. It's a sort of strong element of the teaching of Jesus. Uh, it's there in the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament. You can't avoid it. And therefore, it sort of seems to chime in. Um, okay, so we've seen sort of arguments for this. There's a sort of intuitive sense that we sense that there is a power of evil. Yeah. Often people say that God exists outside of time. So yep. the fallen angel argument, he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. He could see it coming. You know, sure. this yep. guy, this girl is going to actually fall and create all these problems in the world. But okay, yeah, you go for it because I know and I won't stop it. Yeah, okay. So argument there being that... Um, that God creates a world knowing that it's going to go wrong. Um, but he still creates it anyway. Now, again, that's part of the issue we're thinking about here, about, uh, you know, who created evil? Does God create the world with that knowledge? If he does, why is it worth doing? And we'll come on to that, you know, a little bit later on as well. So, again, um, those who, who are on the other side of the, the, the you know, the, um, the kingdom of darkness argument, what... what what is the is the uh, the difficulty with that that one? Yeah. If the kingdom of darkness is always with it, how can we overcome it? Okay, so if the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of darkness is always with it, how do we overcome it? Yeah, which is a good good point to make, and I suppose it's similar to the the reason why Saint Augustine, I remember mentioned mentioned him a little while ago, um, eventually turned away from um, Manichaeism. Because um, he began to think, well, you know, if, if, there is this, if there is this power of darkness, which is always there, it's never going to go away. And God basically can't do anything about it. He's stuck with it. Was this a God really worth worshipping? Because if God could do nothing about evil, he was just as he was powerless to do anything about it. Uh, it didn't seem to be worth worshipping this God as someone who was worthy of worship. He seemed sort of less than God might be. If, if good and evil are e- equal powers, um, then it gave him a problem in actually worshipping a God that couldn't do anything about the presence of evil in his world. And uh, it actually was a, a view of the world that didn't really give you any hope because if evil is eternal, evil is always going to be there and always was there and is somehow necessary to be there, then is there ever any hope of ever escaping from it at all? It's always going to be dogging our steps. It's always going to be dragging us down. And if the end of evil is actually to destroy us, to to pull us down into death, then it seems that everything ends in death. So kind of evil wins in the end. So see, these are some of the kind of issues in around it. Now, I guess with all three of those, and you're absolutely right to say, you know, I've been a bit unfair to make you choose one. Um, because, of course, each one of them has a certain part to play. Um, but as we've seen in each of the three arguments, there are real some plus points. There are reasons why it seems to make some sense. But there are other things on the other side that might make us think it doesn't work as a total answer to the problem. Now, let me just um, uh, begin to um, try to construct a way of thinking about this that might help us go forward. Now, a passage of the, the New Testament that I've always found quite helpful in thinking about this problem of evil is, um, is a story that Jesus told. And uh, 
it's a story that isn't often seen as an analysis of the problem of evil, but I think when you read it, read it through that lens, it really helps us quite a bit. And uh, the reading is from, it's a little story in Matthew chapter 13, and um, uh, here it is. So it says this. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what does that story tell you about good and evil? It tells you a story about a farmer who sows good wheat in his field, and yet weeds come in and they start to kind of infect the field, and the story goes on. So what does this story tell us about good and evil? Well, here are some key points, and I think they should come up on the, um, the screen right now. Um, have we got those? So here's the first one. It tells us that creation is originally good. In the story, the farmer who is God, okay, in the story, God creates, or he makes it, there's a good field and there's good seed. In the beginning of the story, there's no bad at all. There's no weeds, there's just good field and good seed. And if this is a depiction of the way God makes the world, it's saying to us that, that creation is originally good. In other words, there's no bad in it. Creation is made perfect. It still has to kind of develop, it has to evolve, yes, that's right, but it's perfect in the same way that a baby is perfect. A baby is born and you say, ah, oh, it's a perfect baby. It's still got to grow into maturity, but it's still a perfect baby. And so it's saying that the creation is originally good. It's not that there's a flaw in creation. It's not like a potter who makes a pot that's got a little crack in it. And the crack one day is all going to break open and the pot is going to be destroyed because there's an error in it right from the very beginning. It's not that he's created a field with some wheat and some weeds in it. No, the wheat was originally, the field was originally full of good seed. So, according to this story, the creation is originally good. Second thing, something has gone wrong. In the story, it started out good, good seed, good field. But now weeds have come into this field. And now when you look out of the field, you see this strange mixture of good wheat and bad weeds growing together. It's not the way it was meant to be. That's not the way that the field was meant to be. It was meant to be good seed, good wheat growing in the field. But now it's got weeds growing in it. Something has gone wrong that wasn't there in the beginning. It tells us that the world as we see it now is not the way it was intended to be. Evil was never part of the original plan. The weeds were not originally part of the plan. It was meant to be just a good seed and good field. Evil has come in in some way, has entered into it. 
as the story has gone along. Third thing, evil comes from an enemy. When the question is asked, when the, um, the workers say to the farmer, where did these weeds come from? He says, an enemy did this. And what, if, that, if we view this as an understanding of good and evil, what this is saying to us is that, that the weeds have come into the field not because of the farmer. The farmer did not create the weeds. The farmer did not put the weeds in there. They've come from somewhere else. An enemy has done this. So just note that for a moment. An enemy has done this. God is not responsible for evil. The fact that there is evil in the world is not because of a fault in creation, but because of some alien intrusion, intrusion of the world. Something has come into this world that doesn't belong there. Next thing. Um, evil and good are bound together and are often very hard to tell apart. In the story, the weed and the wheat grow together. They kind of bound up with each other. You ever see that? It happens in, in weeds when you get weeds sort of with a rose, um, a, a rose that's growing, or, or you, know, you get bindweed, we get loads of it in our garden. It just tangles itself around the flower as it grows. It's tied together. Sometimes you can't always tell what's weed and what's flower because they seem so bound up and tied together. You can't easily disentangle them. In the story, the workers say, well, why don't we just pull up the weeds? And the farmer says, you can't do that, because if you pull up the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat at the same time. And in other words, it's saying that evil and good are somehow bound together. It's in our experience all the time. We experience good and we experience evil. We experience both of them closely bound up together. Sometimes they're hard to tell apart. You can't always tell what's good and what's evil in the world. And if you try to destroy the evil, you often destroy the good at the same time. That happens every time we try to bomb another country because there's a bad leader in place. We send bombs over and we kill innocent people because they're so much bound up together with one another. Number five, evil is fruitless and destructive. What are weeds? Weeds are well, if you compare weeds to wheat, wheat produces stuff. It produces seed, and you can grow cereals and bread and good things from it. Weeds, you can't do anything with at all. They don't produce any fruit. They're in the wrong place. They don't belong there. If you like, they are useless things. They simply threaten to spoil the crop, to destroy it, so that if the, weed, if the weeds take over the field, there's no more wheat left anymore. So, evil is fruitless and destructive. Then the last thing, one day they will be separated and evil will be no more. In the story, the farmer says, okay, you can't pull them apart now, but let them grow. And when they are fully grown, then you will be able to tell them apart. Then you will be able to remove the wheat from the, from the weeds, and the weeds will be put into the, barn, into the, the fire, and they will be burnt. There will come a day when the weeds will be no more. And as it was in the beginning, when you had good wheat, good seed sowed in the field, that's what it will be in the end. There will be no more weeds. There will be no more evil. Evil will be gone. So there, if you like, are some markers, some pointers to help us think about this issue. Now, let me go on to um, three other uh, insights, or at least uh, witnesses uh, to help us understand this story. First thing is, um, what does the Bible say about this? Um, and when you look at the Bible and you try to find 
arguments that explain, you know, where does evil come from, uh, a philosophical discussion of why evil exists, why God allows it in the world, you don't really find it very much. You don't get a lot of that in the Bible. Um, the most you get is the book of Job. If you know the book of Job in the Old Testament, it's the story of this man who um, terrible things happen to him. He loses his job, he loses his farm, he loses his family, he loses his health, he loses almost everything and he's right at the end of his tether and his friends come around, they try to help him and comfort him and they give him arguments and they try to explain you know, how, why this has happened and he argues back and it's a big long argument, it doesn't really work terribly well. And the book of Job, essentially none of the, none of the friends of Job say to Job, oh, well, this, this is because God doesn't exist. None of them say that at all. This is really a book that's trying to help people think about how you deal with suffering in the world. So, um, in the Bible, you, you don't get uh, a sense of philosophical arguments about the existence of evil. What you do get, and we noticed this in our argument just a few moments ago, is that we do get a sense of this evil power at work within the world. So texts like this, we know that we are God's children and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This one here, Galatians 1, 4, Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We get quite a lot of language about the devil, Satan, whatever you might call it. Seeming to imply to us that there, there is a power at work in the world that is seeking to undo all that God does. It's working against God. We do get that within the Bible. So we don't get a nice, neat philosophical argument, but we do get a sense that there is a power at work working against God. Okay, so there's one thing um, we could say. Second thing, Jesus. How does Jesus, what happens when Jesus confronts evil and suffering? Does he say, well, it's just the way the world is, it's good for you? Just endure it. He doesn't seem to do that at all. When Jesus encounters evil and suffering, he opposes it with every fiber of his being. Here's a quote from um, uh, David Bentley Hart, who's a Christian um, theologian and writer. He says this, For after all, if it is from Christ that we are to learn how God relates himself to sin, evil, suffering, and death... It would seem that he provides us little evidence of anything other than a regal, relentless, and miraculous enmity. Sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. And absolutely nowhere does Christ act as if any of these things are part of the eternal work or purposes of God. Now, if that's true, what he's saying is actually that it doesn't sound like Jesus is saying, well, this is all for our good. It's all good for us. That God has created these things so that we will somehow mature through them. Yes, he, he sees that through good, evil can come, but it's not that God has created these things and put them in our way. When Jesus encounters suffering and evil and death, he opposes it. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He forgives the sinner. He gives dignity to the poor. He doesn't just accept it. You can see how I think Jesus would be more in, on the side of the atheist priest in Camus' book than he would, sort of the atheist doctor, than he would the priest. 
because Jesus is absolutely opposed to all that is evil in his world. He fights against it with every fiber in his being. And if Jesus does that, that implies that you and I have to do that too. So that's what we get from Jesus. The third figure I want to look at is, I've mentioned him already, but I think he's a really helpful figure in helping us think about, is this um, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of them all, St. Augustine. And um, here he is with his bishop's hat on. Um, uh, and uh, Augustine is a really interesting thinker, thinking about this whole thing. And he comes up with a number of key ideas. And I think they really help us when we think about the existence of evil. Number one, evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. In other words, what he says is that evil is essentially the absence of good. Good is a thing. Evil is not a thing. Evil is the absence of good. It's a bit like um, evil is a, is a no thing. It's a nothing. God is good. and Everything that God has created is good. And evil is the opposite of good. It's a corruption of good. So putting it like this, imagine a tree in the summer and the sun is shining and you've got the tree and there's a shadow behind the tree. Now we can talk about the tree, we can talk about the shadow. We think the tree is a thing, the shadow is a thing, but it's not quite like that, is it? The tree is a thing, you can kind of feel the tree. It's sort of substantial, you can kick it and you can kind of, you know, it hurts when you kick it. The shadow is not a thing at all, is it? It's the lack of a thing. It's the lack of sunlight. It's the shadow cast by the sun. It's the place where the sun does not shine. You can't actually get your fingers around a shadow. You can't kick a shadow. You can't do anything with it. It's the lack of something. Now, that's really what Augustine says is the difference between good and evil. Good is real. Good is substantial. Everything that God has created is good. And evil is the lack of goodness. It's when goodness begins to be attacked and destroyed. So, here is this idea that Augustine has, that evil is the possibility that God has allowed that the creation might turn away from him towards the darkness, might turn away from good towards evil, might turn away from life towards death might turn away from creation towards destruction. And that's possible. We can do that. And evil happens when we turn away from the source of all goodness and love and light, and there's nowhere else to turn but nothing. That's when evil happens. So, for Augustine, um, evil has no separate existence. It's not a thing like goodness, on the other hand. It's the absence of goodness. And uh, now, you might say, okay, well, if, if, if evil is a nothing, if evil is the absence of something, how come it's so powerful? How come it destroys so many things? Well, Augustine has some answers to this. He's a very clever man. Um, he would say that evil, evil only does its work by taking hold of good created things and turning them bad. And the more powerful that created thing is, the worse damage it can do. Rowan Williams, our old archbishop, once said that um, um, an evil human can do far more damage than an evil hamster. I don't know there are such things as evil hamsters, but maybe, you, maybe you've got one at home, I don't know. Um, but his point being that 
evil does its work through taking hold of a, of a creative thing and turning it bad, turning it away from God. And the more powerful that thing is, the more evil it can do. So angels can do worse damage than humans. Humans can do more damage than hamsters. Ham hamsters can do more damage than ants. So that's the kind of way evil works. And the second thing he says about this is that, you know, if, if evil is nothing, how, does it, how is it so powerful? He says, well, it's a bit like this. Think about this. Um, imagine stopping eating for two months. Now, in a way, you're not doing anything. You're just stopping doing something. You've got a lack of food. But that lack of food will destroy you. You will gradually just wither and go to nothing if you just do not eat and drink. So it's a, it's a nothing in one sense, but the lack of that substance, substance will, will kill you eventually. So this is Augustine's idea. Evil is not a thing. Um, second big idea he has is that evil comes from the creation turning away from the creator. This is his idea that everything that God has made is good with absolutely no exception. God does not make bad things. But things can turn bad when they turn away from God, when they turn away from life, when they turn away from love, because God is the source of life. He is the source of love. When we turn away from him, we end up destroying ourselves and everything around us. That's where evil comes from, the turning away of creation from the creator. Now, Augustine thinks about that as the, as the angels. He has this idea, like many other Christian theologians do, that the angels in the first place, they turned away from God. And that's where it all got started to go wrong. And that's where you get kind of angels tempting human beings. And like someone was saying, yes, there is this evil power at work on us, but we have our free will as to whether we decide to choose to obey that or not. So this is his other idea that creation, that evil happens when the creation turns away from God. And the third thing he says about evil is that evil binds us so that we're no longer free. So what happens actually is this habit of turning away from God and thinking, well, we can get by without God. We can turn away from him to other things. It becomes a habit. And it becomes a habit we can't really kick. It's like an addiction. And so it gets to the point that it's a bit like a heroin addict. You know, the heroin addict thinks he's free by taking the extra shot of heroin, but of course he's not free at all. He just has to do it. And that's kind of like, like what we are. We've become people who are addicted to turning away from God. We can't turn back from just to choose that way. That's why he says grace. God gives us his grace in Jesus Christ to turn us back to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. So this is, we talk the Bible, gives us no philosophical arguments, but it does talk about a power of evil at work within the world. Jesus seems to be totally opposed to evil, fighting against it with all he has. And Augustine tells us that evil is not a thing, it's a no thing. It's the absence of good. Now, let's go back to some of our key questions. First question. Why does evil exist? It's one of the key questions we have. Why does evil exist? Well, in the story. Um, why does the enemy sow weeds in the field? No idea. Doesn't tell us in the story. There's no reason given at all. He just does. So when we think about evil and its existence, people ask, you know, what, what, what is, why does evil exist? What is its purpose? What is its point? And of course the answer is that evil has no purpose because it's the absence of purpose. Evil is where there's no purpose at all. It's purely aimless. Evil can have no explanation 
because it's the absence of explanation. There can be no sense to evil because evil is purely nonsense. Evil has no meaning because it's the absence of meaning. Evil can have no reason behind it because it's fundamentally irrational. There's no sense to it at all. Evil has no point because it's by definition pointless. Now, to get this, this point, um, I've got a little bit of video to show you because there's a little bit... Um, you may, anyone seen The Dark Knight Batman film? Okay, good. If you have, you'll recognize this little clip. Um, and uh, I, I need to explain what it is. Now, The Dark Knight is the film where Batman is opposed to the Joker. Um, do you remember Heath Ledger, brilliant portrayal of the Joker? I think it's a, fantastic, it's a brilliant um, uh, depiction of evil. It's one of the best depictions of evil I think I've ever seen. And in this bit of the story, um, the villains of Gotham City have got together, all the, the bad people, supposedly. And they have basically um, they've robbed all the banks. And uh, they've collected this huge great pile of money, which they've now put in a warehouse. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the Joker is now talking to his hoodlum friends, his kind of villains, uh, as part of this consortium who've robbed all the banks, uh, about what they're going to do with the money. They've actually divided it into half. You know, the Joker's got half of it. You know, the other villains have got the other half. And this is what happens at that moment uh, when they're discussing what to do with their money. All right? No, so crazy as you look. I told you, I'm a man of my word. Where's the Italian? Wait. Dogger Matt, what you do with all your money? You see, I'm a guy of simple taste. I enjoy uh, dynamite and gunpowder and gasoline. What's it? You know the thing that they have in common? They're cheap. Sergio Romano survived. Oh, I am. I'm only burning my half. All you care about is money. This town deserves a better class of criminal. And I'm gonna give it to them. Tell your men they work for me now. This is my city. They won't work. Why don't we cut you up into little pieces and feed you to your pooches? Hmm? And then we'll see how loyal a hungry dog really is. It's not about money. It's about sending a message. Everything burns. If you didn't hear that bit, let me just explain the little section at the beginning. He said, um, all you care about is money. This town deserves a better class of criminal, and I'm going to give it to them. And then, of course, he puts gasoline on the, the money, and he sets fire to it. And at the end, he says, it's not about money. It's about sending a message. Everything burns. Now, you can see the point here. The, the, the other criminal, he, he wants the money. And, you know, money's a good thing. Okay, he may have got it in a bad way, and he shouldn't really have it, but he's got it, and he wants to spend it, and he wants to kind of buy stuff with it. That's, you can kind of understand that. But 
The Joker understands real evil, because evil is not about getting bad things and enjoying things, you know, ill-gotten gains. It's actually about destruction. It's about evil. What evil does is just destroys everything. It reduces everything to nothing. It can't create anything. That's why I think this, the Joker is such a brilliant depiction of what evil does. It doesn't create anything. It just destroys everything. So why does evil exist? We cannot give an answer to that question. It doesn't exist for anything at all. It has no point whatsoever. Next question, who created evil? Again, in the story, who created the weeds? Again, we're not told who created the weeds. Who created evil? Well, if evil is not a thing, no one created evil. Because evil is not a created thing. Evil is the absence of creation. It's a bit like, you know, if this chair here, imagine that chair got broken. And you were to say to me, who created the brokenness? Doesn't make sense, does it? You can say who created the chair, but you can't say who created the brokenness because brokenness is not a thing. It's just the fact that the chair doesn't work anymore. So that question, who created evil, doesn't make any sense because evil is not a created thing. It's the absence of creation. It's when creation just goes wrong. So when people ask you that question, that's the kind of way to answer it. It doesn't make sense, that question. Um, third question, uh, where does evil come from? Well, we're told in the story, where does, he, where does the weeds come from? An enemy did this. And uh, that bit of the story, we can see in each of our three answers, we can see some point to it. We can see, yes, that human free will is involved in this. We do bad things, maybe because we're tempted or because whatever it might be, because our wills go wrong. Yes, we can learn through evil, but there's an element to this third element as well. There is a power at work within this world which is trying to drag us away from God, which is trying to destroy us. And sometimes we cooperate with that power. Sometimes we get caught up in it. And we do stuff that destroys ourselves and destroys our world and destroys our planet and destroys our families and destroys our relationships as well. So where does evil come from? Yes, there is a power at work within the world, but it's not, it's not equal with God. Satan and God are not equals. That's why the, kind of evil, the, you know, the devil and the angel on both sides of our shoulders doesn't quite work. Um, God was there in the beginning. God will be there at the end. Evil is only temporary. As we saw in the story, the weeds weren't there in the beginning. They won't be there at the end. They are only temporary. Goodness and life and love and God are eternal. Evil is only ever temporary. It's part of our experience now, but it wasn't there in the beginning and it won't be there in the end. That's why Christians are people of hope. So, where did it come from? Well, it comes from, yes, there is a power at work within our world seeking to draw us and drag us away from what is good and full and substantial and God. There's another question I might slip in here. Why does... Why do bad things happen to particular people? This is a real kind of personal one, isn't it? Why did that person get cancer and this person didn't? Why did that child get knocked over in a car and this child didn't? These are some of the most difficult questions we ask. And when it happens to you, you you can tend to ask that question. Why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to them? And this isn't an easy one to answer, but because... As we've seen, evil, there is a kind of randomness about evil that has no sense, has no rhyme or reason to it. And maybe that helps us to begin to understand why there is no rhyme or reason to it. Now, that doesn't mean that's the last word. I want to sort of say something about that in a moment. 
But there is a randomness to evil in our world, which means that we can't always predict what's going to happen. Stuff happens within our world. Because evil is like this virus which has got going and trying to kind of destroy everything. We can't tell where it's going to rock up next. It's a bit like a computer which gets a virus and just doesn't quite work the way it should do. But then, if you like, all these answers are always partial answers. They only take us so far. Because ultimately, the real question is, what does God do about evil? As I've said, we can't really give an answer to the problem of evil. And that's not just because our minds aren't able to do it. It's because evil has no answer. It has no point. It has no reason. It has no rhyme or reason to it as well. That's why we can't give an answer to why it exists. But the key question is, what do we do about it? If it's there in the world, what does God do about it? Now, in the story, it's interesting, isn't it, how the farmer says to the people in his, his workers, um, don't pull up the weeds, because you will pull up the wheat as well. Sometimes people say, if God was good, surely he would destroy all causes of evil in his world overnight. And presumably he could do that. If God is all-powerful, he could destroy all the causes of evil in his world tonight. The difficulty is that if he did that, none of us would be left. Because, of course, you and I are caught up in this. We are causes of evil in our world because of the stuff that we do to one another. So God knows that somehow good and evil are bound up even inside ourselves. It's as if the weed and the wheat are kind of growing together even within us. And so what does he do? He waits. He waits. And he waits until growth happens, maturity takes place, until gradually you can separate them out. It's a bit like, you know, when you're, when you're gardening uh, and when you, the, you know, the, the weed and the flower has grown to the extent you can tell the difference between them, you have to very painstakingly sort of unwind the bindweed from the flower so you can take it out. It just takes time. And that's the picture we're given of, of God. He waits until we mature and grow and we learn to be weaned away from our addiction to evil by the power of grace and the power of goodness. So, here is what does God do about evil? Now, this is a crucial question. And again, this is something that I often think about when um, uh, atheists or others um, say to me, well, I can't believe in God if he allows suffering in his world. And I, I sometimes answer, okay, that's fine. You can delete God if you want to. You can get rid of God because of suffering in the world. But by doing that, have you solved the problem of suffering? Because you haven't, because you've still got to deal with it. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist, you still get cancer, you still get stuff happens to your family, you still get breakdown, you still get illness, you still get disasters happen to you. It's pretty universal in the human race. And if you're an atheist, you have to deal with suffering as well. And the problem is, if you take God out of the picture, you've taken away any hope that it ever might be any, anything it ever might be any different. Because as we've seen in the Christian understanding of it, there will come a day when evil is no more because evil doesn't belong here. It's an alien intrusion. It doesn't really belong in this world like the weeds in the field. So as a Christian, you have a belief that one day evil will be no more. You've got hope and you can cling on to that even when you're in the middle of real darkness. And if you're not a Christian, you 
kind of difficult to hold that because you sort of think that evil and goodness, they're always going to be there. There's never going to be an escape from it. So, yes, delete God, but you haven't solved the problem of evil. And in fact, you've taken away any hope that it might be any, ever any different. So, um, what does God do about suffering and evil? Well, ultimately, what God does about evil is Jesus. Into a world which is this strange mixture of good and evil, growing together, often indistinguishable. He sends his son. He comes in his own self, as it were, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And we're told in the scriptures that by entering into the very heart of evil, entering into the the heart of darkness in itself, going to the, the cross, the worst possible kind of human suffering you can imagine, where not only do you get physical pain, you get that utter sense of abandonment, not only by your friends, but even by the God that he knew. He enters right into the very heart of the darkness to destroy it. And we know he destroys it because, of course, he breaks through it into resurrection. And so what the New Testament talks about is that Jesus has broken the power of evil. In the cross, through dying for our sins, he offers us forgiveness for our sins, for our part in the evil of his world. And in the resurrection, he gives us hope that one day evil will be no more. It can be banished from our own hearts and it can be banished from the world itself. So through the coming of Jesus, and then through the gift of the Holy Spirit, who begins to work within us, begins to transform us from within, we begin to lose our taste for evil, to lose our taste for jealousy and anger and greed and lust and all those things that destroy us and our relationships and our world. We begin to think those things, oh, I don't want to go there. And we begin to develop a, a love for Humility and kindness and goodness and forgiveness and grace. This is what God does. So this is what God does about evil. He sends Jesus. But then a step beyond that, right at the heart of of the divine response to evil in his world is actually you and me. It's the church. And so... The church, strangely enough, now we know the church is always a mixed thing. It's never brilliant. Well, sometimes it's brilliant, but it's all a bit of a mixture, isn't it? Let's be honest. There's some good stuff in it. There's some not some good stuff. We share in the Christian church in the same problems that the rest of the human race have. We have some good stuff and some bad stuff happen. So this is not saying the church is perfect, but this is what the church is called to be. And this is how the church acts as part of God's answer to the problem of suffering in his world. And a church that is the answer to suffering is a church like this. It's a church that has a place for lament. There are times when you just have to sit with suffering. You don't say anything about it. You don't try and give answers. You don't try to be clever. You just sort of sit with someone who's suffering. That's what Job's friends do to him. It's the best thing they do for him. They just simply sit with him for a long period of time. There are times when you just simply have to cry out, God, this is terrible. I cannot cope with this. This is just awful. Now, if you read Psalm 88, Psalm 88 is the darkest moment of the entire Bible. Psalm 88 is just a long complaint to God. There's no light in it whatsoever. 
There's no little upturn at the end. Well, it'll all be all right in the end. There's nothing of that. It's just complete darkness. Apart from the fact that he's still addressing this prayer to God, that he still somehow believes that God is there even if he can't feel him and he can't see him. It's lament. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. It gives you a clue to how important lament is, those moments when we just simply say, God, this sucks. And I don't want to say anything more than that. You just have to sit there and uh, lament. So this is a, an important thing. And I, I think you know, Christians should be able to do this more than other people can because we believe that death is not the end. We believe that evil is temporary. Now, I had an email a little while ago from my, my wife's aunt who lives in America. And she said to me, um, she sent this email saying, uh, would you take my funeral? I said, oh, um, that's an interesting one. And uh, she went on to say, uh, well, I've, uh, I've attached to it the, the, the order of service. Um, I worked out what hymns I want in my funeral, what prayers I want, you know, what passages from the Bible I want. And uh, so I emailed back saying, oh, that's very interesting, you know, why are you thinking this? Because she was in good health and everything else. And she said, well, we've been on a course in our church. It's called preparing to die. <laughs> and the vicar says that all of us old people have got to go on this course. And the vicar basically said, look, you're all going to die. And it's going to come sooner or later. So you want to think about it. You want to think about, you know, what you're going to have in your funeral. How you're going to, are you going to make your will. Make sure you're prepared for it. Make sure you've said sorry to the people you, say, you should say sorry for. And I thought it's a really good example of the way Christians ought to be able to look death in the face. And not be scared and phased by it. Because we know it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bad thing. We don't want to go through death. No, no one looks forward to it. But we know there's something beyond it. We know it's not the last word, so we should be able to be in a place where we can face the darkness of the world. We can hold it, we can lament it, and we can deal with it. So the first thing is that the church needs to be a place of lament. Second thing, the church needs to be a place of resistance. We saw how Jesus, when he faced evil and suffering in the world, didn't just say, well, that's the way it is, you know, endure God's judgment upon you. He fought with it with every power that he had. And so the church needs to be a place of resistance to the evil in the world. The human race, and the Christian in particular, is mandated not just to accept evil, not just to learn from it. Yes, we can learn from it, and that's important that we do that when it comes our way. But we are mainly to fight against it. So when we find injustice, when we find suffering, when we find pain, we don't just accept it, we fight against it with all the tools that God has given us. And that might be prayer. Prayer for healing is part of our resistance to the evil in God's world. It might be political action locally, seeking to get justice for people who are suffering and struggling and who are not getting treated fairly in our society. It might be fasting. Fasting to see something, some breakthrough in our lives or in our lives of our local community. There are all kinds of spiritual disciplines, gifts that God has given us to address the evil in the world. It might be setting up a food bank. It might be opening a homeless center in your church, doing all we can to resist the evil that is there in our world. All that takes away home and livelihood and justice and goodness in our community. So the church needs to be a place of resistance to rise up and fight against all that is evil in our world. Um, the church also needs to be a place of transformation. We've seen how Part of God's answer to, to suffering is to send the Holy Spirit to work in us, to slowly change us over time so we lose our taste for what is evil and we learn to love what is good. And again, the church needs to be a place where 
Um, this happens. Because God doesn't destroy evil at a stroke. He slowly works with us over time to disentangle the evil from the good within us so that we are drawn towards what is good. And so churches need to be a place that have a plan as to how we're going to do that. How are we going to help people to grow in holiness, grow in a love for what is good, to grow in a love for what is God's, and learn to kind of that distaste for the evil things that, 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 that possess us so often. So this is about our patterns of discipleship and spiritual formation and growth in our lives. So that it becomes a place in which we can be transformed over time as we engage with God and with one another in prayer and community and, and uh, the, the exercise of the spiritual disciplines as we are formed into the image of Christ. The church needs to be a place of solidarity. Again, sometimes there are places where you just have to be with people who are suffering. Um, I remember Rick Warren, the um, American pastor, uh, being interviewed a little while ago. And you may know he's, I mean, he's um, the pastor of Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in America, largest churches in the world. And, um, but yeah, recently he had a son who had severe mental health issues and eventually committed suicide. And um, I remember him being interviewed about this and was asked the question, how did he cope with this? And he said, you know, there are, you know when, when you're in agony, you don't need an answer. You just need someone to hold you. And he's absolutely right, wasn't he? When you're in agony, you don't need a nice, neat philosophical answer. You just want someone to kind of come with you and stand with you and to be with you at that time. You need solidarity. And churches need to be places that can simply be with and hold people who are suffering and struggling through whatever else there is, not try to give answers, but just to be with them in solidarity. It's interesting, in the book of Job, um, what happens at the end of the story, you know, all his friends give him all these answers, and that doesn't really satisfy him, but at the end of the story, what happens? God appears to him, and God tells him, asks him a whole series of questions. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the animals? Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I created the seas? And Job simply says, well, I repent in dust and ashes. I knew nothing. I spoke in ignorance. Now, the interesting thing is that actually it's, it's those same arguments, you know, Job, you don't know anything about this. You know, where were you when God created the world? It was used by one of his friends earlier on, but that didn't cut any ice with Job. What's the difference? The difference is that God is speaking to him. What Job gets is not an answer, but an epiphany. God suddenly appears to him, and that's what makes the difference. God stands with him in his suffering, and that knowledge that God stands with us in our suffering is part of that answer to it. So church needs to be a place of that sense of solidarity. And then lastly, the church needs to be a place of hope. As we've seen, we Christians have this hope that one day evil will be no more because we believe it wasn't there in the beginning. And because of that, we are always people of hope. However dark things may be, it was pretty dark on Good Friday but we knew that Sunday was coming. So the church needs to be a place where hope is always held out. It's why Easter is in some ways the, the heart of the Christian year, when we celebrate that hope that we have in resurrection. It's why in every service that we come back and we mention resurrection, we continually kind of keep on coming back to that. When we have the Holy Communion, the Eucharist, we say we do this until he comes again. 
There's always that future-looking sense that we are people of hope. And so church needs to be a place that's always telling people there's always hope. Don't give up. There's always hope. We are the people of hope. Actually, there's not a lot of hope out there in the world, but we are people who believe in hope. We have a sense of what hope there might be. So church needs to be a place of hope. That's why we set up signs of hope. So every time you set up a food bank, what is it? It's a sign of hope of the day when one day hunger will be gone forever. Every time you pray for someone and they get healed, it's a sign of the day when one day sickness will be no more. Every time that you, you offer a homeless person a place to sleep in a dark winter's night like this, you're setting up a sign of the day when everyone will be at home with God. All of these things are signs of hope. That's what the church needs to be, proclaiming hope and living out hope. So that is the way it seems to me that God answers. He doesn't give us a nice and neat answer. There isn't any nice neat answer because evil doesn't make any sense. But what he does give us is Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, embodied in the church as the hope of the world. Now, um, just uh, we've got about uh, 15 minutes left before we finish tonight. And um, what I'd love you to do is just turn to your neighbor very quickly, just for about one minute, and um, just say... Uh, what, what have you heard so far tonight that's uh, made you interested? Made you think, well, that's, that's interesting. That's a, I've, that's, that's a new thing for me. I'll think about that. And then secondly, what question do you have arising out of tonight? And um, then we'll have a little bit of time for some Q&A uh, just before we close in about 15 minutes' time. Okay, just um, turn to your neighbor. Um, what's the thing you've learned? What's the question you have? Yeah, brilliant. Good, good. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Good. Some politest student in the front row. I think he's writing an essay. Is <laughs> really? <laughs> so good. Okay, shall we uh, come back together? If you've got a question, um, stick a hand in the air. Ron has got a microphone and he will come in your direction and um, it'd be great to get a few reactions, responses, comments, questions for tonight. So, what have we got? There's one in the middle there. Yeah. In the story of the seeds, the good seeds, then the yeah. enemy puts the bad seeds in, let it grow up, and then you, once they're mature, you pull out the weeds, you burn them, hmm. story over. But it's not over, is it? Because the enemy that planted those hmm. weed seeds still exists. What happens to that enemy yeah. in reality? Sure. Did everyone hear that question? Okay, good. Um, 
the, ask, the question is, if you didn't hear it, what happens to the enemy at the end of the story? Now, in, in all parables and all stories, there's never a kind of a, an easy sort of night. It's not all tied up together. If we transfer it into kind of Christian theology, what happens to the devil at the end of the story? Um, well, the first thing to say is that um, uh, angels are not divine. They are created beings. Um, and uh, created beings can be destroyed. We can destroy ourselves. I guess the argument I'm setting up is that goodness is substantial, it's real. Evil is nothing, it's simply destruction. And uh, so it seems to me that there's two options, and in Christian theology there have been two, two answers to that question. Uh, one is that the devil is ultimately destroyed, like all that, like all that is evil eventually destroys itself. It's like cancer. Um, and I'm no great medic, but as far as I understand it, cancer is basically cells that turn against themselves. They turn in upon themselves, and they gradually just destroy everything. And uh, so evil ultimately destroys itself in the end. It kind of goes back to nothing. So one answer is that the devil is ultimately destroyed. Um, the other answer is that, and there's some Christian theologians have argued, is that the devil gets converted. Is there a possibility for the devil to be converted? Well, who knows? That's a slightly theoretical question. But technically speaking, I think within Christian theology, you'd say every created thing is good. Yes, it can turn away from God, but it still doesn't take away its, the goodness of its creation. And redemption is always possible. Now, you can argue about, you know, when does it come to a point where a person or a created being goes so far that it becomes impossible to turn back again? So you can argue that point. But those are the two kind of ways in which Christians have thought about the ultimate answer the ultimate destination of the devil and I suppose part of this is saying that that ultimately at the end of the day the choice is not you know I'm going to choose God or I'm going to choose evil it's actually God or nothing there is no other reality than God we either choose God or we choose nothingness and that's the same choice the devil has as much as the rest of creation as well okay other questions there's one here Sorry, my question relates to the point before the last question. He asked, where does Satan go at the end? Yeah. My question is still, the enemy came in, yeah. but where did that enemy come from? Because yeah. the arguments up yeah. to now have been yeah. uh, nowhere. <laughs> well, in, in, Christian, in Christian angelology, if you put it that way, angels are created beings. They are like us. They're just a different order of being. A bit like you know, animals are different from us. Angels are different from us. We may not be able to see them. And again, there's a whole kind of you know, theological science about angels. You can get very interested in angels. Um, you know, how do angels appear to themselves? What kind of stories of strange people are appearing from nowhere that don't seem to have any particular reason? But the point is that angels are created beings. And that if, if there is, a, if there is a, such a thing as such a person as Satan, he is a created being who has turned away from God. And so he's not eternal like God. He is a created thing. He's not like God. He's not like the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. He's not a part of the Trinity, the eternal God himself. He's a created being. So where did he come from? He was a created being that has turned away from God. And that's, that's how evil always happens. We are created beings, and we can turn away from God and start doing evil stuff. That can happen too. So that's how it works. Yeah. Another question? There's one at the back over there.
You said creation is all good, but yeah. what about the evil in natural world, yeah. such as animals tearing each other to pieces? Yeah. That's part of creation, yeah. one of the most basic parts. That's how we and everything gets food, sure. or a lot of animals get food by yeah. killing other animals. Yeah. Good, good question. And I guess in, um, in Christian theology, um, it seems to me that Christians have no problem with evolution. They have no problem with the idea of that species develop over time. I guess what we do have a potential problem with is, um, well, the fact that that involves the destruction of certain species. I think, we, 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 I think I'd want to say, was that originally the way evolution was meant to happen? Because what I think Christians say is that this whole world has been infected by evil as a result of this, the weeds, the, the virus that has entered into the world. And that affects not just us, but affects our entire creation as well. Now, this is a kind of hard thing to, to get, but we can begin to understand it. So um, we are very aware now, I think, in our world of the effect of our decisions, not just upon our own lives, but upon the whole creation itself. Our creation is threatening to undo, our, our actions are, are threatening to undo the very fabric of creation itself. Um, so we can see that our actions do have an impact upon even the very, you know, earth upon which we stand. And again, one of the ways in which Christians have understood this is to say that that, um, that moment when whether it's the angels or human beings, turned away from God. That affected not just the human race, but it affected almost everything. It's like one of those mobiles, you know, in a children's bedroom where the, the, the string hangs down and everything else hangs off. When you cut the top string, the whole thing begins to collapse. Uh, if you read Paradise Lost, um, uh, Milton's great, great poem, there's a moment in that when uh, Eve takes the apple and uh, she gives it and... and um, and she, 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 you know, Adam bites into the apple. And, uh, or Eve bites into the apple. And, and the line is this. It says, you know, she took, she ate, earth felt the wound. And it's Milton's way of getting this thing that, that, that somehow that action of part of creation, whether angelic or human, turning away from God, actually has affected the whole of the, whole of the creation. And so maybe there's some elements in which... Um, uh, the, the kind of diseases, the, kind of the damage in creation somehow connected into that turning away from God by the angelic or human forces. Now, this is a difficult one to get hold of, and, and we have to make distinctions between different things here. Um, and there's an interesting case in point. So earthquakes, for example, tectonic plates, the fact that they rub up against one another and cause earthquakes. Is that an evil thing or is it not? Well, you can debate this, can't you? It has... It could potentially have evil effects. It causes suffering. But the fact that tectonic plates rub alongside each other is not necessarily an evil thing. Um, and this gets into the question of what's the relationship between evil and suffering. This is a really interesting one, which we didn't have time to go into tonight. Is all suffering evil? There may be some suffering that is not. You know, a little child trips over and hurts their knee and cries. Is that evil? Um, or is that just a kind of part of living in a world where stuff happens? Um, these are quite sort of technical and difficult questions to, 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 to answer, but I think that's what I would, I would say about it, that, um, that uh, 
the evil that happens in our world is somehow still connected into that. Uh, the creation turning away from God that unleashes a power within this world that is almost beyond ourselves. Now, you can sense this. It happens sometimes in nations, doesn't it? You know, many Germans after the Second World War uh, look back on their experience and they say, someone said, what happened to us? How did we get to do these things? It's almost like a power overtook the whole nation that was more than themselves. Occasionally, we have it as well. Sometimes we do something and we think, I don't know what came over me. We're sometimes aware of something at work within us which is beyond ourselves. There's a kind of power at work beyond just the actions themselves. And I think that's what we're talking about when we think about um, the effects of evil within our wider world. So I think that's one way of approaching that one. Maybe time for one more before we um, close. This one over there. If you had to try and sum up your question in one sentence, what would you say? Yeah. In answer to that question, why does God allow suffering? I'd say, maybe this is a long sentence. (laughs) Uh, He allows suffering because he wants to allow us the freedom to love him. But he doesn't love it. He opposes it with all his power. He engages us to oppose it with all our power. And finally, one day, it will be gone forever. I think that's what I'd say about it. So in some ways you can't give a... It's, I, I, I don't want to go down much as the greater good argument takes you so far. I don't think it ultimately answers the question. I find it difficult to believe in a God who puts in place childhood leukemia and puts in place um, the damage that happens in sort of forest fires and so on. Um, I can't attribute that to God. Um, but it seems to me in the structure of the way God is, I can see why God even foreknowing that this was going to happen. It's worth it in the end because creation might know fully my goodness. Now, suffering is not necessary for that. He didn't have to allow suffering. But the moment we turned away, he has to allow that possibility in order to to bring about what he wants to to bring about. We've reached quarter past nine and we should um, draw our evening to a close. So shall we pray as as we finish? Father, there are many unanswered questions in our minds. We find it difficult to get our heads around these issues. We find it difficult to understand evil, but then we realize that maybe we're not meant to understand it. But we do thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who comes into our world, who enters into the heart of darkness and overcomes it and offers us freedom from the power that drags us down and instead begins to transform us into the image of Christ. And I pray for every church represented here tonight that our churches may be places of lament, of resistance, of transformation, of solidarity, and of hope. And we ask this in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
And so as we go from here tonight, may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Can I also say a big thank you to Ron and to uh, all the team here at St. Saviour's Sunbury, all the guys at the back there. Thank you so much for all you've done uh, to, um, and all the cakes, whoever made the cakes. They were amazing, weren't they? Um, so thank you to all of those who uh, set up this evening as well. So well done to all of you. Thank you. Ron. For more information about St. Saviour's, please visit www.stsaviorsunbury.org.uk